Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. One of the things we'd built was this concept of virtual touring. So you could stay on your couch, but have an agent visit a home. But we could only get a very small number of people to hit that button. Despite all of our trying, we only had 1% of our tours happening virtually. And then the pandemic hit, and almost overnight, it jumped to about a third of our tours being virtual. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast, brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. Real estate and healthcare. When you think about the COVID-19 pandemic, these two deeply personal industries were forever changed in many different ways. They also represent some of the extraordinary efforts and lengths that leaders went to to change and evolve and meet the moment. In this conversation, we cover some of the incredible leadership stories and product strategy challenges found in Black Swan events like the COVID-19 pandemic with Bridget Frey, CTO at Redfin, and special guest co-host Ali Littman, Interim Head of Engineering at Modern Health. We also get into topics like some of the lessons from adapting product strategy through the pandemic's uncertainty, the challenges with building out AI ML home buying products, and incorporating human needs and desires in automated recommendation products. We also talk about addressing data bias and systemic racism within product features. Let me introduce you to Bridget. As CTO, Bridget leads the engineering and analytics teams at Redfin. Prior to Redfin, she was the director of analytics and business applications at Lithium Technologies. Since 2019, she served on the board of directors for Primera Blue Cross, and she was recently recognized as a Seattle CIO of the Year award winner. Enjoy our conversation with Bridget Frey. Bridget, thanks so much for joining us. Ali, thank you for joining us. How are you both doing today? Doing great. Yeah, feeling fantastic. Thanks for having me. For those of you who have not a chance, have not had a chance to meet Ali Littman yet. So Ali's been involved uh, with ELC for a really long time and has helped us shape many of our different learning programs, um, including our peer group experience. Uh, Ali, I remember our early days when we were shaping like, what would it be like to be a moderator? What's important here? How do we create the right environment and culture? I want to give you a big shout out. Uh, and now you're the interim head of engineering at Modern Health. Thanks so much for joining us as a guest co-host. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here and continue on my journey with ELC. So to set up our conversation, when you think about the last two years, there, to me, two industries really come to mind, real estate and healthcare, as forever changed as a result of a lot of the different primary and secondary impacts from the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, real estate, you have everything from the remote work phenomenon and forced onboarding, and for a lot of obvious reasons, how healthcare has changed. So it's really exciting to talk to both of you and your experiences leading your organizations and companies from both of those perspectives. So to open this whole thing up, Bridget, this first question for, for you, what's it been like leading a real estate technology company, navigating COVID and this tumultuous real estate market? What has that been like for you? It has been a wild ride. I mean, when the pandemic hit, it seemed like the whole real estate market just ground to a halt and everyone was holding their breath just saying, you know, what's going to happen next? Is anyone ever going to buy a house again? But within a couple of months, it completely changed. And it seemed like all of a sudden everyone was thinking about moving. We saw now, you know, about a third of the people who are looking to buy a home are looking in areas outside of where they live. They're looking to migrate. And that's a historic high in what we've seen. And I think that the pandemic opened up a whole new way of life, remote work, and just these new opportunities for people to explore other areas. And that has played back into real estate. So we've just been trying to keep up with all of these trends. And Ali, for you on the, the healthcare side, I mean, with when, when you're at Omada, you're looking at everything from supporting people experiencing chronic health. Now at, at Modern Health, it's everything related to, to mental well-being. All of those things, incredibly challenging the last two years. What's it been like for you? 
Yeah, it's been a moment of extreme volatility and also growth. With the volatility, you know, definitely looking around um, and seeing, you know, people craving stability in a moment when things are very unstable. And that shows up in, in many different ways in terms of like product evolution as well as leadership of your teams. So yeah, it's definitely been been a bit of chaos. But I, I would say, um, you know, in these times, you really want to stick to what you know, but actually, these are times when you actually, you know, don't want to waste a crisis, um, as one of my mentors would say. And so you really needed to, you know, look around you, see what was going on and act fast. So I would say, you know, during this time, you know, already in the digital health space, it was highly competitive. Um, I come from the B2B2C healthcare tech space. And so it was already super competitive, lots of players entering the market, lots of fighting for market share. And as we entered into the pandemic, um, you know, we we're already on this trajectory of increased telehealth visits. All of a sudden that became almost the norm. Um, I think I read a stat somewhere, you know, like Medicare visits that were telehealth visits increased like 63 fold. Um, and mental health especially became not only a top priority for employers overnight, but it became a top priority for individuals and also what organizations wanted to start investing in. On um, the Omada side, um, definitely saw, you know, not only were, were Omada already expanding the number of products that they were offering to remain competitive, but they entered into uh, mental health as well at that time um, to meet that demand. And we saw the demand from some of the other products like you know, diabetes prevention uh, really shifting. Um, so that was in less demand. We now were uh, seeing more organizations looking for mental health care and wanting to invest their limited resources on those sorts of products. Um, so that caused the organization to really shift and make sure that we were getting that product out to market as quickly as possible. On the modern health side, uh, that's really their origin story. Modern was about 30 to 40 people at the beginning of the pandemic. They grew to uh, about 400 people um, in a matter of just, you know, a couple years. Um, and that was ge definitely generated by this great change caused by the pandemic where now people really wanted mental health services and wanted them online. So it's been a really interesting journey to, to help pick up their growth story and help them scale through that time. I can't imagine being in the environments that both of you have been in. I think for ELC, the biggest impact that we faced was, Bridget, we exchanged emails maybe three years ago, right at before the beginning of the pandemic. And we were just starting to launch in-person events in Seattle in January 2020, which in hindsight, just like is a little bit ridiculous in nature. And so like for us, the big shift was going from virtual to in-person. But for both of you, at so many different levels to have like a complete strategic shift in terms of what you focus on. I'd love to start diving into some of the lessons and how that this big uncertain moment impacted product decisions, engineering or strategy changes. Bridget, when you reflect on this experience, like, are there some lessons that stand out to you in, in hindsight, looking at everything that happened? Yeah, I mean, we were founded with this premise that we could use technology to completely change everything about real estate to make it more cost effective, to make it easier to be on our customer side. And so when the pandemic hit, we had been working for years on trying to move more real estate online. And one of the things we'd built was this concept of virtual touring. So you could stay on your couch, but have an agent visit a home with either their phone or another digital technology and kind of give you that experience of being in the home. You didn't have to leave your couch, but we could only get a very small number of people to hit that button. Um, despite all of our trying, we only had 1% of our tours happening virtually. And then the pandemic hit and all of a sudden it was like the future came early and people were ready for that digital experience that we'd built. And almost overnight, it jumped to about a third of our tours being virtual. We were so glad that we had invested in that. And it was this technology that we'd almost put on ice, we'd almost set outside. So I think one of the lessons was just, you can build a product that is this great idea, but the consumer still really has to be ready for it. And that can change quickly. The usage part is is so interesting. When were you looking, I guess, like at a dashboard of click throughs to that particular button? Like, how did you identify that moment that this was this was an inflection point for that product? We are a very data-driven business, so I can, I mean, we've got dashboards for all sorts of things and looking at how someone starts on the site, searching all the way to through when they buy or sell their home. So everything was heavily instrumented. And when the pandemic hit, we just started said, oh my goodness, everything is going to change. We're going to start seeing all of these new patterns. So those patterns around people wanting to migrate to a new location, people touring virtually, people wanting to use, we have a, a 360 degree walkthrough experience, a virtual walkthrough on all of our listings. We saw a 600% increase in the number of people who were trying to use that 360 degree view on our site during the pandemic. So we just saw those behavior patterns change 
and we let our product follow what the customer wanted. If one more one more follow up question about this. So this is more from a leadership and alignment oriented question. When you're observing this within your teams, how did you get align the team on the direction for the next step for the organization? Was this like was it an obvious consensus? Were there certain conversations that had to be have? Was it a big marshalling moment where the entire organization came together and said we're going to to do this and overcome? Like what was that moment like? So we've always run our business in this very open and transparent way. We share as much information with our whole company as we possibly can. And so when the pandemic hit and we saw that people weren't touring, they weren't buying homes, we shared that information at our company meetings with all of our agents, with all of our engineers, just so that we could make sure that everyone was aligned on what it was like and what we were going to have to do. So people knew that we were going to have to change, that we were going to have to be flexible, that we were going to have to follow where the market was going and be prepared for that. And so I think that openness, it you know, it did create some worry because you know, that weight of the fact that the business wasn't doing well was on everyone's shoulders. And there was a specter of layoffs. We did ultimately have to furlough a number of our real estate agents, but we decided to take that transparent approach so we could harness as much of the energy as we possibly could so that we could really be there to help our customers through a hard time. Absolutely. Ali, when you're examining sort of your experience with all of this, like, were there any similarities, any differences that you've observed? Yeah, I I think very similarly at Omada, we were starting to see some of the business metrics shift. Um, that's when it really triggered further research, but quick research and quick action. And I think that was what really characterized, I think, a lot of the folks that survived uh, the pandemic period. So having those metrics in advance to understand like exactly how the market conditions and other environmental conditions were impacting the business was critically important. So then you could make the decision at a high level to deploy the right resources to further investigate what's going Going on here? How are our buyers changing their behavior? Um, understanding that people are, you know, tightening their belts during this time. You know, same same thing happened with our customers. Therefore, we were listening to and researching what exactly is going on here. Um, what do they want? And that really drove uh, decisive action, pretty much, you know, top down because that's the kind of leadership you need. I think during moments like this to say, okay, let's rethink what we're prioritizing and what we're building and figure out how do we bring this to market quickly. I think that was another thing that was really challenging. It wasn't just the how do we pivot the product and development strategy. It was and then how do we roll this out and make sure we're getting the right signals. This is the right thing. So I think there were these elements of decisive action from leadership based off of data and then um, refocusing the organization around what were the new priorities, decreasing the noise of the older ones and having people able to quickly measure are we on the right path or not knowing that we've slowed down velocity in other areas and what we're doing right now with our limited resources we think is going to get us the most bang for our buck and making sure that we've got the right measures and inventing those as we go so we can ensure that we're able to move that top level metric to support the business growth ongoing during a time when everything else around us feels unstable. The decisive action and then the bringing to market quickly principles in in some of the the research in preparation for this conversation, Bridget, like there were some of those elements uh, of the story at, at Redfin in terms of I think it, there, I forget what it was there was a certain number of features that got rolled out really really fast that addressed like these new evolving needs of folks within the space. What were some of the the like net new products or features that were created during the time? And can you bring us into the room for choosing why to, to follow and build out those new products and features versus other ones? Yeah, I think that what we really did was focus on digitizing and making experiences digital of really prioritizing on our site ways that people could experience almost like walking through a home, but without quite being in the home, or how can they sign all of the paperwork that is involved with real estate without having to go and meet someone in person. So we really, you know, we, we talked to our real estate agents, like that's where a lot of these ideas came from. We've built a team of engineers that want to work side by side with real estate agents who don't pretend that we have all the answers. The way that we figure out what a real estate agent needs is by spending time with our agents of listening and looking at what it's like for them. And so those experiences helped us identify all the things that were hanging up the process, all the things that were making it hard to buy or sell a home. And then we just 
put engineers onto those things and, and made it easier. There was a time at the beginning of the pandemic when to sign the documents, you know, you weren't allowed to be in person in a small space with somebody else because of all the government regulations and all the rest. And so we actually had real estate agents driving to parking lots and handing papers for signature through cracked car windows. I mean, it was, you know, almost like a drug deal or something like that, putting the papers through the window. And we knew that that kind of thing couldn't stand. So we had to really figure out how we were going to transform this uh, really almost overnight. The, the thing that stands out to me a lot about this, I feel like a lot of the narrative when the pandemic happened, there was a lot of you know resources being shared online. And, and one of the narratives I remember seeing was like in moments of like great disruption and uncertainty, it's the companies that focus deep, more deeper on like serving and delivering value for the people in their community that oftentimes are able to, to navigate that. So like the the really intimate connection with the customers, I think from an engineering perspective, is it, it sounds like that had a really big impact in that moment. Yeah, it, it absolutely did. And I think just also recognizing this role we had to play in the national conversation about housing. I mean, there was a hunger for information. People were worried. There was fear. And we have to recognize, you know, what's unique about our view as Redfin in this space. And one of the things is, you know, we are, we're the only company that has, we've got one of the top 100 websites in the United States. We've got all these people who are clicking, looking at homes. We have all of that data available. But we're also a nationally scaled real estate brokerage. So we know if people are torn if they're buying homes. We're the only company that can put that picture together. And so in times of turbulence in the market, we're going through that again right now. There are a lot of, there are journalists, there are government institutions that turn to us for our data and our perspective, just taking that responsibility really seriously. It never occurred to me the, the weight of how everybody else is reporting on it are relying on your data for that moment. And then the implications of that, if what you're providing people are inaccurate, wrong, or biased. Absolutely. It's a it's a heavy weight. And we know that people do make decisions on this. Consumers make decisions. Governments make decisions. They use the data from us and from other companies to try to figure out what's going on. So it's something that we really invest in. And again, we just we really feel the weight of that responsibility. Another question. So we talked a little bit about how the product strategy and the, the engineering organization evolved through this moment. When you think about your role as a leader and as the CTO, are there any lessons that you've been reflecting on from the last two years around leading through uncertainty or tumultuous times. We talked a little bit about transparency and the impact that that has. Are there other lessons that come to mind from this particular moment? Yeah, I think one of the things that, you know, maybe it's obvious in retrospect, but I didn't I didn't expect it at the time was how much we were going to have to invest in getting our people through a really hard time. All the things that are going on in the world affected our people. Some of them affected our business, but all of it affected our people. When you think about you know, political divides and racism, a pandemic, now a war in Ukraine, these things are just, they are, they are affecting our, our people. And this idea that you know, people are experiencing burnout that was really difficult, especially for people with young children at the beginning of the pandemic. And then it started to emerge that a group of our folks that were struggling were the people who were maybe right out of college or earlier in their career and living kind of maybe alone in a new city and not being able to go into an office and not having chance to connect. And so looking for the groups, looking for the people who may need extra support and figuring out, you know, how can we as a company help those people? How do we get our team through a really hard time? So that was something that I really remember focusing on in the pandemic. It wasn't just our business strategy. It was also our people. Ali, I, I, I saw you, you resonating deeply with, with that point. Yeah, not only do I, I strongly agree with that perspective, but it's also the story of mental health as a priority for employers to provide to their employees. Um, so it very much aligns with the growth that modern health went through during the pandemic, as I think employers realized the importance that they played in the mental health and support of their employees on, on a larger scale. I definitely personally view the pandemic as a moment of collective trauma, um, and then there were many other things layered on top of that, which, you know, actually isn't that different from our normal experience in life, but it felt very compounded uh, with this broader event that we all experienced together. I think that because people spent a lot more time focused on 
work as well during this time. And that felt like their main support system because that was one of the few groups of people that they were constantly connected with. I think it really highlighted the importance of people finding support in their place of work from their peers, from their manager, from other benefits. And, you know, I think that in the longer run that for, for the organizations that were able to do that, you know, that really paid dividends in terms of the engagement of, of individuals. And also it was a way that I think a lot of companies were stepping up and doing the right thing to support people through a hard time. Um, so yes, great things with productivity and trying to make sure people can focus. But at the end of the day, that was a truly human moment as well for us to all see how much work impacts someone's entire entire life. And I think um, there was a lot of pressure put on folks like us in, you know, in leadership positions to make sure our people were, were taken care of. That showed up in, in a ton of ways and changed a lot of a lot of ways that we might actually help one another, both from you know the benefits side of things, but also mostly just from how do we organize to ensure that people are are doing okay and we can help guide them on the right path if they are not. Bridget, one, I was hoping you could bring us into the, this conversation kind of related to this element of the mental well-being and the responsibility of employers. Because I, I know that Redfin had rolled out the reduced stress week. I'm curious to learn about the conversation at the leadership level around adopting and implementing a company-wide large-scale program like that. Can you bring us into the decision-making and, and what that was like to adopt that? Yeah, so where that came from is we worried at first when we all went remote that it was going to affect our productivity, that it was going to be hard to get things done. It was going to be difficult to produce the software and all the other things that we need to do for our customers. But we sort of quickly realized, maybe to, to Ali's point, people were actually putting more time into work. They weren't commuting. There wasn't maybe as much going on in the rest of our lives. And they were almost working too hard that productivity became too high and got into a red zone. And we started looking at ways that we could really get to what the, you know, the, the ideal amount of productivity for our folks. And so that's where this idea of reduced stress week came from. Um, some companies did things like give an extra day off or, you know, summer Fridays or that sort of thing. But we're in a business where we need to be doing business on days when our customers are buying or selling homes. So anything that's not a bank holiday, we need to be there for our customers and our real estate agents. We cannot just have all of headquarters or all of our agents leave on a particular day. So this idea of reduced stress week came about where we said, well, why don't we take a week where we cancel all the recurring meetings, cancel all the meetings, you know, have, it's a week where your manager's not going to ask you for new work. It's in Instead, a week where you can clear the decks, and if you want to go for a walk and think about things, or you want to take, you want to work a little less that week. Some people take vacations that week. Some people do different things with it. But it was a little bit more of a, a free time for you. You could catch up on something. You could make progress on something longer term. And we're now doing that once a quarter, and we've just found that when we surveyed people, how much they appreciate it and how much people say they're able to work in a different way without interruption to work on longer term and more transformative projects, which ultimately is really good for our business. I totally agree. So we went from this place where there was a lot of structure around how we worked. We went into an office, people had places to sit. Um, there was a lot more predictability and structural reinforcement for how we should be interfacing with one another and what working meant. And as we moved into this new world, I think leadership as well had a new opportunity to, to look at what we could be more flexible on and say, how can we make this work better for folks so they can be productive in a way that feels comfortable for them? And so one of the big things that I think a lot of leaders, a lot of employers um, did, they went ahead and said, all right, what does comfortable work look like for you knowing that now you probably don't have to go into an office, um, knowing that maybe you have more flexibility on your working hours, everything is tech enabled. What does that look like? And how do we rebuild how we interface and how we set expectations with one another so we can focus more on the output and less less on the optics of I showed up to work and I sat in a seat and I talked to the person next to me and that's what work meant. Um, and so this really gave people an opportunity to reflect on what worked well for them and for leaders to come in and say, how do we support this so people are putting their energy in the right place? And we can also set up some guardrails to help them not put their energy in the wrong place um, in the event that uh, you know they're taking on too many meetings because they think that's the best thing for them. Um, but really, maybe you need that you know low stress week or a meeting free week as we, we have those as well at Modern. Um, we have both mental health weeks and meeting free weeks to kind of balance, um, you know, hey, you need to take a moment to reset. Or maybe Zoom is exhausting. And that's a new thing that we're doing. Um, we're having all of these virtual meetings, but that can lead to burnout in and of itself. 
and we need new controls to help people understand how to navigate making decisions around what is critical and what is not, and also leaders setting expectations around, hey, this actually isn't a measure of success, how many meetings that you're taking. Um, what's a measure of success is the output of what you're producing and even with working remotely, the ability to bring others along on that journey as you're achieving whatever the goal is that you're trying to achieve. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. So thinking about like the level of experimentation that both of you have illustrated within your different companies to change the style of work, there's a, a quote that I, I think about often. Uh, it's, a, it's a Buddhist quote, how you do one thing is how you do everything. Because both of you are in industries that experience significant amounts of changes to the way how things were being done, do you think that primed both of your organizations to evolve, I guess, quicker, faster, or be more malleable to different changes and styles of working because of just the nature of everything that was going on in your environments? Yeah, I think we built on, you know, years of kind of scrappiness and trying to maintain our startup feel even as we become a larger business. So we're definitely building on that. But the pace of decision making and change definitely went up over the last couple of years. It used to be that you could kind of put a plan together and, you know, a good six months or maybe even a year, if you're lucky, you could execute on that plan. And more recently, we've had to just get better at, okay, like, as the business needs it, as we need to adjust, how do we go through all of that in a way that's careful and takes care of our people and takes care of our existing projects, but still sets us up to execute on what's most important. So I think it's been, yeah, setting, setting us up to go faster at making decisions. I wanted to take a hard hard swerve to do a new topic. Bridget, the topic here is about some of the, the AI and ML products at Redfin and how you approached the, the strategy around building out some of those products. And just to kind of set up some of the environment or the story, when I think about COVID and some of the, the drama as it relates to real estate was sort of in the, the real estate technology environment, there were a couple folks dabbling in different AI ML products to assist with home buying. And some of those worked, some of those didn't. And, and there was a lot of sort of dramatic news stories kind of related to, to all of those things. I think that you have a really great perspective and thought process around building AI ML products and experimentation around adoption for those things or investing more resources. And so I'd love to just get your perspective on maybe what was going on in the industry at that time, or as somebody who has built out AI ML real estate, like assistive products, what was going on? Um, why was that such a challenging thing? And what are some of the lessons that came out of those stories? Yeah, I mean, we've been investing in machine learning for many years, particularly around things like recommending homes to people that they may not have found on their own, and also pricing a home. And I think the whole industry in the last couple of years has had this idea, you know, what businesses could you build if you knew how to value a home better than anyone else? And there are a large number of businesses that you can imagine if you had that information and you could place your bets better than anyone else. Uh, you can you can really build some significant businesses that way. But I think where it starts to become very difficult is that real estate is still a very local, it's a very human, a very in-person experience. I think that a machine is always at a disadvantage when it doesn't have two legs, it can't walk through a home, it can't experience everything about what it's like to live in that particular place. So what we've really tried to keep an eye on is that we want our machine learning algorithms, pricing or what have you to support a human being, whether it's someone who's a real estate agent who's helping you figure out what to sell your home, or we also have an iBuying business called Redfin Now. So that may be one of the businesses that you were referring to where we'll buy a home with our own capital, we fix it up and then we put it back on the market. So there we're actually spending you know, Redfin's own dollars on a home. How you price that is so important. We've kept humans in the loop on that because we want to make sure that the algorithm is supporting a human and not the other way around. So for me, that's one of the biggest lessons in ML for real estate is you can't completely take the human out of it. I think that's great. Ali, you look like you had a follow-up question. Yeah. 
I definitely have similar experience with that big question. And I have a follow-up question as it relates. Omada had a lot of machine learning enabled features that supported various care journeys. And um, a lot of it had to do with, um, you know, personalizing the experience, but also this key decision as to, you know, especially in healthcare, if you have a digital experience, but there's also a, a, a real human coach that's involved as well, when do you invest your chips in the automation of the experience and potentially even a care recommendation versus having a human being involved in making that recommendation, but maybe there's technology enabling that. Um, so I, I'm curious, as you were looking at various you know, features that you maybe wanted to you know, have be part of an automated and product experience versus more of a recommendation to a human that might then deliver that, how did you um, how did you make those decisions based off of those inputs? Yeah, I think it was by making a lot of mistakes, frankly, is how we arrived at that. The very first machine learning algorithm that we built was to recommend homes. And we thought we were going to save our agents so much time. They had been crunching through all this data, trying to match it with their customers' interests. And we were going to have a machine come in, come out with this perfect list of recommendations. And the agent was just going to have to hit a button and it would send those recommendations and everything would be glorious. Well, we shipped the feature and agents were not using it. We could not figure out what's going on. And so we finally started talking to the agents and asking them. And what we realized is we hadn't given the agents a way to modify the list. They couldn't remove a home that they knew wasn't right for that customer. They couldn't add something to it. We had just literally, I mean, it sounds you know, ridiculous in, in hindsight, but we had expected the agents to just completely take the machine learning algorithm at its word and just hit go. And so the agents weren't going to recommend it that way. It made them look foolish to their customer. It made them look like they didn't know their customer. And so we've really tried to infuse that into how we build product since then. We've really tried to make sure that our engineering teams know that, again, you've got to have that human perspective. You can't completely take them out. So it's making a lot of mistakes. That's how we've learned along, along the way. It's so interesting to think about like the unexpected impact of like some of the deep human needs and that like in the real estate agent like wanted to demonstrate expertise and that might be something like is a deep need that is hard to uncover on the the surface. Have there been any specific practices that you found to be helpful? Um, you mentioned like visiting and, and walking with real estate agents as they do different tasks. Have there been any particular actions or tactics that you've done to help really deeply understand some of those harder to understand needs? I think, honestly, a lot of it is related to how we hire our engineers. So we've infused the skill sets that we think are needed to show empathy, to listen, to use data to make decisions instead of just trusting your gut, all of those kinds of things. We look for that when we're hiring engineers. We've learned from what works, and we've put that into the very early phases of meeting new people that we want to bring on staff. And I think that's helped us to have the feeling of our team, I think, is unique. I think it's different from many companies in tech. And when people find a home at Redfin and our technology team, they often stay for a very long time because they realize how special that is. And if it speaks to you, it speaks to you. You can really do your best work in that kind of environment. So that's been one lesson for us is to make sure we're hiring people who want to work that way. That's great. I have a different question as like a follow-up related to the story of iBuying and building out AI ML products. So the nature of the question is like, how do you use some of those like black swan, totally unexpected moments to either maximize that opportunity or at least like build resilience against it? And so like when I think about y'all story, it's like you had the, this virtual tours button that 1% of people were using that was hidden that all of a sudden was positioned to be a really highly demanded feature. And then on the other side of this, then the, the iBuying model becomes really risky because all of a sudden prices are going way up high, way down low. And then there's also the unexpected human need of real estate agents wanting to command expertise around the, the pricing and valuation. So how do you, like, are there any lessons around how do you create resist, uh, resilience against some of like that crazy uncertainty with some of the different products that you're building, um, or at least like prepare yourself to maximize those moments? We've almost had to do machine learning modeling of that uncertainty. So it, you have the basic machine learning models of how you're going to price homes, but then you also have to have a model for how uncertain things are. Should you be looking 
pretty far back in history? Or should you be looking at just the recent past? And should you take some macroeconomic forecasts, you know, looking even further, looking at where do people think interest rates are going to go and all the rest? Can you actually add that into the algorithm at times of great change so that the algorithm is able to understand what's going to happen in the world? You know, the, the algorithm typically doesn't know that there's a war in Ukraine or that there's social unrest in a part of the United States. It doesn't it, it doesn't often pick up on those things. So you have to find a way to give the algorithm the information it needs to adjust its future projections. So that's what I'd say is like figuring out ways to bring that uncertainty into what you think should be a more straightforward model. Sounds great. I have a deeper follow-up question, but before that, Ali, are there any other follow-up questions or related to some of these topics or areas that you want to take us down into? I think I'm okay for now, but I, I'm just very nerdily interested in <laughs> all the things you just mentioned about your algorithm. I know, it's so much fun. <laughs> I'll hold off on those follow-up questions for another time. Well, I, I, like, you know, I didn't want to let my uh, not as savvy as everybody else in the room technology, like, technology show. And so I want to be like, well, how do you build out that type of model that is like, how do you build the uncertain model? It does, it gets into, you know, there's a lot of guts of the algorithm for sure. But, you know, you're trying to figure out how to forecast what's going to happen in the future and which of those things might affect your algorithm. I think where we've really had to learn a lot about that is with our iBuying business, Redfin Now, because we're buying a home and then we're going to fix it up and put it back on the market sometime in the future. So that concept of what will it be worth in the future and what will it be worth in the future after you've maybe put some repairs or done some work to it, how do you figure that out? That's when you really realize, oh gosh, if the world is a more uncertain place, there could be bigger error bars, there could be a wider range of outcomes. And now you have to price that into your products as well. So I really think that working with iBuying kind of stretched out our timeline for the machine learning algorithm to be able to weigh in on a price and made us increase the sophistication of the underlying algorithms. We got the secrets to, to or at least some of the first principles behind building the uncertain algorithm. There you go. That's fantastic. <laughs> So when you're thinking about like broader product strategy, because obviously like the Redfin Now product was just like one of a, of a larger suite of different offerings that you all have. What was the approach to thinking about resiliency with with all of those different products? When you when you consider what are we going to invest in next or what are we going to stop investing in now? Has your thought process changed over the last few years in terms of how you consider prioritization? I think that it's it's what's changed is how our customers are feeling, what it's like for them to be out in the real estate market. I think as you know, all these alternative products have come, you know, ways to get mortgages, ways to buy or sell your home, you know, all the data that's now available on all these different sites, you know, back 20, 30 years ago, there weren't online databases of homes for sale. And so all of that information is hitting the customer. All of those choices are hitting the customer. And I think what we've had to evolve is really realizing that our role is increasingly helping helping a customer navigate all that complexity. It's not enough mm -hmm. to just put a bunch of data on our site to put some prizes and some homes and all the rest on our site and then walk away. We actually now have a responsibility to help our customer figure out what's right for them. How do they get into their dream home? How do they get the best price? And so if anything, I think we've become most more customer focused and more understanding of what it's like to buy or sell a home in uncertain times. I am so glad that that is like the area of concern that everybody at the company is because I'm thinking about like, you know, there's a lot of sentiment around the home buying experience. It's it's deeply personal. Uh, it's often cited as like the biggest investment that people make. And, you know, I'm just thinking about like some of my own personal experiences. Like I, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And in my lifetime, I have watched, you know, my childhood home now be valued like at a ridiculous amount. And it's like a small three bedroom place. And it's like, that's wild. And then I also spent the last two years in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and I watched home values double in a year. The, those phenomenons are so interesting and so complex and so deeply emotional and personal because then you deal with all these other things going on. Um, all to say, really excited that folks deeply care about navigating the complexity because as an aspiring home buyer, very confusing. So I think that's great. The other element of this that I think is so interesting is throughout this whole conversation, like it's been really, it's been very evident that the approach that you all take behind, you know, the AI ML algorithm or the different choices is really intentional. One of those elements that I found really interesting in, in preparation for the conversation is the element uh, in the role and responsibility that Redfin places on itself around data bias and addressing systemic racism through the different choices that you make with inclusion and exclusion for the data within your products. And so I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about your perspective on data bias and just at the root level, how to make decisions to reduce or remove bias at the product or feature level. 
Yeah, I think if you're in the housing industry, you really have to understand and have to take some pause at the fact that real estate has a really reprehensible history for causing neighborhood segregation and discrimination, especially for people of color over a long period of time. That's why we have fair housing regulations and all the rest. And so when you build machine learning algorithms or really any technology, you kind of have to consider, you know, are we recreating some of those problems, but just doing that in an algorithmic way? So for example, when we created our machine learning algorithms, we had a choice to make about what kind of data to feed into the algorithm. And algorithms are more accurate the more data you feed into them. So we were considering, you know, should we feed in a data set of demographics where it said, okay, well, this is the type of people who live in a particular neighborhood. Should we feed that into an algorithm that prices and recommends homes? And when we thought about it, we just said, no, we're not going to do that. Even if it makes the algorithm supposedly more accurate, we would not have a real estate agent, a human real estate agent use that kind of data. And we certainly didn't want to have an algorithm use that data. We also took a stand on crime statistics. That's something that many homeowners ask our real estate agents for. There are places where you can get that information, but we thought about, should we put that on our site? We did a lot of research and we just weren't able to find a data set that wasn't biased by things like over-policing and, and things that don't necessarily mean a neighborhood is unsafe. It just might mean that there's bias in how that community is treated. So we made a stand to not put that data on our site. And shortly thereafter, some other major sites decided to take their data down as well because they frankly agreed with the position. But you have to be careful and thoughtful because it's so easy to feed more data. The data is, there's data that's available. It's so easy to feed the data and not even think about it. But we have a responsibility in real estate to do the right thing. I would love to learn more about what those conversations looked like because I'm thinking about like from the perspective of somebody listening who wants to, you know, be more thoughtful about the choices they make around data inclusion. How did you all come to the determination of what to include or exclude? What did those conversations look like? Yeah, so I think some of it comes from, you know, we've done kind of training about fair housing and those sorts of things throughout the company. So just explaining the context to people. I think also hiring a diverse group of engineers has been something that's been very important to me. You know, I'm a, I'm a woman in tech and I have a certain set of experiences. And so bringing different folks into our team so that we could find these sorts of problems, I think that you're just more likely to identify issues like this, if you have a diverse team where people have different lived experiences and they're bringing those to bear. We also rely on a user research team that more formally takes looks at things like crime statistics. So when we had to go to that level, we applied maybe a more formal and rigorous process with a research paper to try to digest all of that. So I think those are some of the elements. I don't know that there's one silver bullet to this. It takes constant vigilance. It takes a commitment to really looking for these problems and taking action when you see them. I'm curious, uh, it sounds like there's a lot of controls around the inputs of what data goes in. I'm curious if you have controls on the other side, if you happen to be noticing any trends where the, the algorithm is outputting things that you might find to be problematic recommendations that might also be pushing towards something that might reinforce systemic racism. Yeah, we, we have looked at that. We've looked at, you know, does our pricing algorithm, does it show any forms of bias for historically black neighborhoods and things like that? So we have tried to look for those things and then take action um, if we see a problem with it. So you do have to measure the output of your algorithms as well when you're developing something new. And if you see a source of bias, then you need to ask your engineers to take another look and, and figure that out. You mentioned the the user research team taking like a more a more formal approach to to dive in. Is there like a, a high level process or framework to help like guide somebody? Like I'm just thinking of if we were to equip somebody with just like here's the general sort of playbook to to go with. What what would that look like? Yeah, user research is a formal discipline now, so people can, you know, you can learn about it in colleges and through online courses, and it's almost a mix of kind of an academic approach or more more research-based approach where you take a big question, such as, you know, are, are crime statistics biased, and you really go outside the walls of the company and to the real into the real world and try to figure out what is going on. User research also relies often on talking to people, on watching customers using our products and interacting with them, and just looking at things in a a different way from how an engineer or a quality assurance person might look at a particular set of products and how they function. So it just provides another voice when we're making decisions. 
So I'm thinking about like with the teams that you're leading, are there certain questions that you ask folks on your team to continue to like revisit the conversation around the the inputs to the data for some of these different algorithms? Like are there are there questions that you ask the team as like where everybody's kind of working through the different considerations? Yeah, we've worked we have a we have an economics team that I've worked with on this subject where they've been able to bring up some questions, um, some of those things about how might we test an algorithm to see how it's performing and all those sorts of things. So we've connected that economics team with our machine learning folks to try to provide some statistics-based ways of looking at potential sources of bias, at looking at how our algorithms are really behaving and making sure that it's what we intended. And if you were going to give a recommendation to somebody who is going from a place of this has been a blind spot to now focusing on this, like what would be what would be your recommendation from a place to start to make this a, a larger priority and a, and a part of their their product building? Yeah, I think you know first learn about what are the sources of bias in your particular industry. There are in every industry there are books that have been written, there are talks that are given, there are leaders who've shared their own experiences about what it's like, and you can. Get smart on that. You can educate yourself on what might be happening in your own industry so that you know what to look for. And then, as I mentioned, I think hiring a diverse team is important. And then I think leadership has to make it a priority. You need to make sure that leaders at the company are really enforcing this and saying it's important. I know that you know maybe it will slow down a particular project, but this is a good reason to slow down. This is a good reason to be thoughtful, make sure that we're really doing the right thing. That's great. Thank you. You, you mentioned a couple times about hiring a, a diverse team. And part of the story of Redfin is some of the the extraordinary results and progress that you all have made around having like a, an inclusive and diverse workforce. This is your story to tell, but the, the high level, uh, 11 years ago, I believe you were the only woman on Redfin's tech team. On our Seattle tech team, which is our headquarters. Yeah, so I was the only one. <laughs> and then now, the I think some of the statistics I've seen is that there's more than 50% of managers through Redfin as women, 37% within engineering as women, and, and 10% Black and Latinx, which are extraordinary results in progress. I'm curious to learn a little bit more about your story there. Is there a, a certain inflection point that helped create the momentum or transformation there? So this is an area that's always been, you know, personal importance to me as a, as a woman in tech and experiencing some, though not all, of course, of those sources of bias and things in my own career and just wanting to make a change in our industry and leave the industry in a better place for others. And when, when I became CTO about five years ago, I kind of had to have this moment of realization that, gosh, if there were if there were problems within my own team, if there were problems with diversity on my own team, it was going to be my responsibility. It was on my watch and that I really had to do everything that I possibly could think of to try to make it not that way. Even if the change was going to happen over time, even if it's just a few things that you tweak every year and you get a little bit better over time, that I still needed to be committed to growing that. So I think part of it was just that realization but then it was also just taking this approach. I sometimes think of myself as like a diversity mechanic or something where you're just, you're looking for like, okay, well, this one thing isn't working. Let me get out the wrench and tweak this other part. And you really have to look at everything your company's doing, everything from, you know, how you hire. That's traditionally where a lot of people focus diversity efforts, but how do you retain people? How do you plan products? How do you, uh, you know, all these things we're talking about, about bias and algorithms, like all of these things become really important when you're trying to build a diverse team in the long run. So uh, we use the same tool that we use for tracking our bugs, which is called Jira. And we made a bug list for diversity and we tracked bugs in there. And then we made, we prioritized them and we just started working down the list and some of the things worked. And I think that we've seen that in our results. And I wish more companies would try some of these things. I wish there were more of a commitment in the industry, but at least I want to make things a little bit better where I am. Can you tell us more about the bug list? Putting things in a bug list when we first started going, it made it it made it, I think, more accessible to the engineering and product teams that engineers solve all kinds of hard problems. There are people trying to you know, send people to live on Mars and all the rest. Like, surely we can think of diversity. And so I think putting it in context for engineers of, oh, if you have a hard problem, you make a list, you prioritize that list, you do the things that you think are going to work. And if they don't work, you go on to the next thing. I think it contextualized it and it allowed more people to have a way to express their ideas, even if they weren't from 
an underrepresented background. It brought more people into the conversation. It made it more open. And we just got a lot of ideas from people that we were able to take action on. Our program's more formal now than a bug list as we've gotten a little bit bigger, but that really helped to get it started and make it everyone's problem, not just the problem of a leader or someone from an underrepresented background. I love that approach, Bridget. You need the space and resourcing broadly and prioritization from an organization to say, hey, it's okay to spend time on this. This is a priority, right? If we want to actually improve diversity on the teams and also the culture of inclusivity. But I think a lot of leaders forget that, um, especially in tech, they need to be solving this at the department level. There needs to be a visible strategy. And with diversity, that's the lens people are looking at. How are we doing at the department level? Um, And there's not going to be some savior from above that suddenly waves a magic wand and says, here's all the things that we're doing. um, And here's how you're going to do them. It's actually at you know the level of technical leadership, engineering leadership to create that roadmap or at least commit to that and make that very visible so people can see here are the actual things that we're doing um, and have the team have some level of confidence that you're at least trying and they can also give feedback on whether or not your tactics are the right ones or whether or not you need to evolve them over time. So I think having that be very visible to people is critically important. And I really applaud you taking the initiative uh, to make sure that there was a visible strategy for your team that wasn't some broader company strategy uh, that you just attempted to adopt. Thank you. I think that's really helped. And I think on your point on visibility, I think sharing the data with your team, even if you're not proud of it, and we published our data actually externally on our diversity, again, years ago when the numbers were really small, but we published it externally to provide some accountability and also to show people who were considering joining that we cared about the topic. Maybe it wasn't perfect yet. I think a lot of underrepresented people, when they join a company in tech, they know it's not going to all be figured out. We don't have it all figured out here either. But what you want to do, I think, is join a place that cares about it and it is going to keep trying until until we do figure figure it out. And that's how I think you create that flywheel. We have some rapid fire questions to wrap everything up. Sure, let's do it. First one, Bridget, what are you reading or listening to right now? So I've been reading Bewilderment by Richard Powers, and it's this science fiction book, but it gets into what is the essence of a soul and and what does it really mean to be human? I'm adding that to my list immediately. Um, I have exclusively been reading science fiction the last three years. Oh, great. They'll be right up your alley. Desperately in need of of more books in the inventory. So this is perfect. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? It's really a simple technique, but I have only one to-do list. It's actually on a page of a small notebook. And if something doesn't fit on that list, it doesn't make it onto my list. And it's just that I don't have a whole lot of other things kind of competing for time. And I update that list every day. And it's just kept me really focused. I love that. The simplicity. What is a trend that you're seeing or following that's interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? I think it's that what I'm really interested in is people who are going to find breakthroughs on how to have teams connect when they're not in the office all the time. I think it's still very nascent. There's some clever ideas, but someone is really going to figure out some breakthroughs there. And it's something that I I really want to learn. Speaking of how teams collaborate in meaningful experiences, what has been one of the most meaningful in-person experiences with your team, company, or otherwise? Doesn't have to be the most, but like, you know, within the top five, like what's been the most meaningful in-person experience? I can tell you the one that's going on this week and today is we're hosting our first in-person hackathon event this week. And I just saw the team today. We had we all had an Ethiopian feast this afternoon, which was amazing. But just to be able to feed off the uh, the energy of others to see people that I've only met digitally has been transformative. And I'm looking forward to all the things that we're going to be able to do together this week. How's the energy in the office? Are, are people pretty excited? There's so many smiles. It really, it's really, it's more than you get when everyone's on Zoom. You just see a lot of happiness, people appreciating each other. To wrap this all up and to to send us off, Bridget, is there a quote or mantra that you live by or a quote that's really been resonating with you right now? We like to say that culture is something we create, not consume. And what that means is that if you want to have a great culture, you need to participate in it. You're going to get back what you put in. It's not just something that you can expect others to do for you. A fantastic way to close us off. Bridget, thank you so much for your time, letting us go over and sharing all of the, the stories and insights. Allie, thank you so much uh, for helping out as a, as a guest co-host and bringing so many great experiences and stories uh, yourself. Really appreciate both of your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Patrick. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. 
And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.